0: Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled A Changing Approach to Triple Negative Breast Cancer Management Patients as Partners in Care is jointly provided by Partners for Advancing Clinical Education or PACE and Platform Q Health Education LLC in collaboration with the National Breast Cancer Foundation or NBCF and is supported by an educational grant from Gilead Sciences Incorporated. Prior to beginning the activity, Please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives.
1: Welcome to A Changing Approach to Triple Negative Breast Cancer Management, Patients as Partners in Care, presented by the Partners for Advancing Clinical Education, PACE, at omedlive.com. My name is Dr. Tiffany Trana. I'm Vice Chair and Associate Attending Physician at Memorial Sloan-Kettering Cancer Center in New York. Today's session is interactive, allowing us to take your questions in real time throughout the presentation. So we encourage you to enter questions at any time in the box below at the bottom of your screen. I'd now like to introduce my co-presenters, Dr. Gregory Vidal, Associate Professor and Director of Clinical Research, West Cancer Center and Research Institute, and Stephanie Walker, Metastatic Breast Cancer Thriver and Advocate, Patient Advisor and The Become Project. Thank you so much, Gregory and Stephanie for joining me today. So let's get started. Um, Here are our disclosures and here are today's learning objectives. So while together, we're going to be sure we describe current and emerging treatment approaches for triple negative breast cancer, particularly focus in the second line setting and later um, for patients with advanced or metastatic triple negative breast cancer. We are also going to talk about how we incorporate processes for addressing and aligning perspectives with patients throughout the care process for TNBC, and we'll share with you some really interesting data and feedback from some recent patient programs we've had earlier this month. And we will discuss real-world data describing patient gaps, disparities, and perspectives regarding um, involvement and participation in clinical trials. So I'm going to first kick us off and spend some time talking about how we tackle or have an awareness of barriers to evidence-based care in the second line setting for TNBC. And we'll first just talk about some interesting observational data, demographic data around real world barriers to how we integrate new therapies um, into our practice paradigms and how we align what the evidence and data shows us with patient preferences that are so important. And we'll spend a good amount of time talking about guideline based algorithms for the management of metastatic triple negative breast cancer, looking at clinical data supporting efficacy and safety of new agents in TNBC, and also looking at some particular subgroups of interest. So, just to do some level setting, I think um, those of us in, in practice caring for women with breast cancer are really well aware that although TNBC represents a small proportion of all breast cancer, new breast cancer diagnoses, it still remains a high area of unmet need. Unfortunately, risk of recurrence from TNBC is higher, tends to do so in the first one to three years after a diagnosis. And once metastatic breast cancer, triple negative breast cancer is diagnosed, median overall survival, unfortunately, is measuring at around a year, perhaps a bit longer based on some of the novel therapies you're going to hear about, but clearly there is room for improvement here. I think what we've also seen is that there are clear demographic differences in incidence and prevalence of triple negative breast cancer. And I'm going to share with you data from multiple different data sets, um, but you'll see this consistent theme that the incidence of triple negative breast cancer in black women and in African American women is higher than in other populations. So in this first data set that you'll see, the subtype of triple negative breast cancer was twice as prevalent in African American women compared to European American women, about 30 3% versus around 15%. Also, the probability of TNBC incidence was threefold higher in Black women compared to European women, even when you controlled for things and matched for things like age and obesity and other risk factors. Also, we've seen that women of Hispanic and non-Hispanic Black um, uh, origin have earlier onset of their disease. So we typically think of breast cancer as an occurrence of older women or postmenopausal women. And yet for triple negative breast cancer in Hispanic and non-Hispanic Black women, median age of onset is in early 50s, 54 and 57 years old, as opposed to 64 for non-Hispanic white women with a diagnosis of TNBC. Um, also, what we see rather disturbingly is that young non-Hispanic Black women who are diagnosed with TNBC tend to present with much higher stage disease, so in this particular um, data set, a higher prevalence of stage three and stage four triple negative breast cancer. What is also um, disturbing but empowering to us because this is within our control, we are seeing disparities in treatment delivered, and so in one retrospective analysis when compared to non-Hispanic white women with TNBC, African-American women um, were more likely to be single, had larger tumors at time of diagnosis as I mentioned before, had a significantly higher risk of being diagnosed at a later stage where we know risk of recurrence and certainly in stage four disease outcomes are are much poorer. And also here is something I really want to call out for us. These women were 60% more likely to receive non-guideline concordant therapy. And so we may know and embrace the data that we hear about of one therapeutic option being superior in terms of efficacy, But why is it that some of those optimal therapies are not getting to the women that need them most? And and we'll share with you some of the sort of possibilities around socioeconomic factors and other um, uh, sort of variables that may contribute here. In one study of more than 23,000 patients with triple negative breast cancer, African-American women compared to white women had far lower odds of receiving surgery and even chemotherapy. And we would think that as a result, as one factor, breast cancer mortality was higher for these women. So this is a bit of a busy slide. You may have to lean in to see the details, but um, this tries to graphically represent the many socioeconomic factors that might contribute to some of the disparity that we're seeing in triple negative breast cancer outcomes some of which could be related to access to healthcare and whether that's driven by cultural or economic barriers um, or lack of access to technologies such as MRI screening or even lack of access to genetic testing so that women at risk recognize that they were at risk. Um, That's one sort of category of factors. There were also some reproductive and lifestyle choices that can contribute to breast cancer risk development, such as um, early childbearing, higher rate of gestational diabetes, diabetes, and perhaps lower rate of breastfeeding. The environment in which our patients live and grow can introduce risk factors in and of themselves. So whether that's related to carcinogens in the environment, stressors, um, areas of food deserts where access to healthy foods and fruits and vegetables may not be as as simple or affordable. Certainly socioeconomic factors related to poor or underinsured or lack of health insurance can be a factor. Income disparities, education, cultural barriers, all of these in- Um, conjunction with other comorbidities that women are facing, such as obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular risk, all comes together to suggest that women may be diagnosed at a more advanced age, have um, insufficient or inadequate therapy, and um, perhaps as a result, then poor survival and poor outcomes. So it's, I think, important to keep that in context as we talk about some of the guideline concordant care and optimal care that we would recommend based on the terrific evidence that we've seen from novel therapies. So this is an adaptation from NCCN, how how we tend to approach and think about an algorithm for caring for women with triple negative breast cancer. I will call out in the top right, you'll see that clinical trials are an option at any line. And that includes early stage disease, pre-op setting, adjuvant therapy, um, and then obviously subsequently for advanced disease, whether we're talking about first-line therapy or later, as I said in our introduction, we certainly have room for improvement. And I think Dr. Vidal is going to share with us um, also some novel sort of trial approaches and new, new therapies. I will spend a moment or two talking about that first line therapy, um, because our decisions about what we recommend in the first line setting are very much biomarker driven. And you'll see these categories are broken down by pdl one status, positive or negative, and germline BRCA status, positive or wild type. Um, and this is so important because of evidence that we've seen and I'll share with you that for women with PDL1 positive, triple negative breast cancer, Outcomes are best in the first-line setting when a checkpoint inhibitor, such as pembrolizumab, is added to chemotherapy. And that is really a preferred option here for patients with pdl one positive tumors, whether their germline BRCA status is um, altered or wild-type. When we have patients that have pdl one negative tumors and have a hereditary germline BRCA mutation, The algorithms here and guidelines would suggest that leading with a PARP inhibitor is a preferred treatment option here um, or cytotoxic platinum-based chemotherapy. Although there, as you may know, there is a nationwide shortage right now for platinum chemotherapy. Um, And so for those patients with germline BRCA mutations, I think access to PARP inhibitors is really um, compelling and important for this category. And then lastly, and, and unfortunately quite commonly, Patients will often have PDL1 negative tumors about 60% of the time. And most women with triple negative breast cancer will have germline BRCA wild type status. And there, um, in the absence of a clinical trial, our preferred first line option is standard of care chemotherapy with those choices largely influenced by what these patients have seen in the early stage setting, what residual toxicity they may have as a result of that treatment and what their comorbidities and personal priorities and preferences are. So let's talk a little bit about these first line data before we spend more time talking about second line setting. And the first trial I'll just highlight briefly is Keynote 355. This was the large randomized phase three study dedicated to patients with triple negative breast cancer treated in the first line with either chemotherapy or chemotherapy plus pembrolizumab. If you remember, patients, regardless of pdl one status, were um, accrued to this trial with a two-to-one randomization to the checkpoint inhibitor plus chemo versus chemo alone. And as we've seen, that has been published and updated now. For the subset of patients who had pdl one positive tumors defined as a CPS score of 10 or greater, there was a significant improvement in progression-free survival when pembrolizumab was added to chemotherapy. In this trial, backbone chemotherapy in the first-line setting was either a taxane, such as paclitaxel or, or nab paclitaxel, or the doublet of gemcitabine carboplatin, and that decision was left to uh, physicians and patients together to choose the chemotherapy backbone. We've also seen really impressive um, fav- uh, improvements here in overall survival, favoring the addition of the checkpoint inhibitor pembrolizumab to chemotherapy. And so this has been really embraced as our first-line treatment of choice for patients with PDL1 positive triple negative breast cancer. I will spend a moment reminding us all about what the NCCN guidelines are for germline genetic testing and this has become much more liberal over the years. You know, certainly having just a diagnosis of triple negative breast cancer regardless of stage, regardless of age, regardless of family history this in and of itself is a reason to pursue germline genetic testing for our patients. Yes, there's a higher likelihood of finding a BRCA1 mutation, but this is critically important because it is an actionable biomarker. We have data from two large randomized trials, the Olympiad study testing Olaparib and the Ambraca study testing Talazoparib, that patients who received PARP inhibitor with germline BRCA mutations had superior outcomes in progression-free survival when compared to standard of care chemotherapy. I think what is also really compelling in a subset analysis from the Olympiad trial, those patients who received Olaparib in the first line setting had a 50% improvement in overall survival. In the intention to treat population, there was no statistically significant difference in OS, but it did appear that the earlier Olaparib was used the greater the benefit here in overall survival. And so this is where I sort of highlighted in our earlier algorithm for those patients with BRCA mutations in the first-line setting, particularly those pdl one negative tumors, I would favor leading with a PARP inhibitor. I'm not sharing the data with you here, but we also have health-related quality of life metrics and safety and toxicity that favored the PARP inhibitor over standard of care chemotherapy. So a huge question is why are only 24% of eligible patients actually being tested for their BRCA status? And there have been lots of um, analyses in looking into why this may be. We consistently hear that a requirement for pretest test counseling has been a barrier, challenging just to get patients to that visit in order to then ultimately get their testing and complex rubrics and guidelines that we had that introduced more barriers than, um, than we have today made it harder for women to pursue genetic testing. There's also some concern on the part of physicians that they'll receive data and information from testing that they just won't know how to interpret and what guidelines and um, guidance to give their patients. There has been um, cost concerns, genetic testing was quite expensive and there was variable insurance reimbursement in the past, although this is getting um, easier for patients. Um, There's been fear of genetic discrimination and then a component of guilt and shame, um, having concern that if a particular patient had a mutation, they were uh, in some way the cause of their family members also having risk. But I think this is somewhat sobering and encouraging because it allows us to take control here one of the largest obstacles to patients receiving genetic testing was that they were never referred by their treating oncologist and care team. So we just have to remember those guidelines, and we have to remember to make these recommendations refer our patients for germline testing. So we're going to shift gears a little bit and move over to the second line setting and later. And I want to highlight what was really groundbreaking data for us, the randomized phase three trial ASCENT, studying the antibody drug conjugate sasituzumab versus standard of care chemotherapy. So this trial enrolled patients with metastatic triple negative breast cancer who had seen two or more chemotherapies. um, And there were over 500 women randomized to sasituzumab as a single agent, given day one, day eight, and a three-week cycle, versus treatment of physician's choice chemotherapy. And patients were treated until progression or unacceptable toxicity with primary endpoint of progression-free survival and many secondary efficacy endpoints as well as safety endpoints shown here. Just a moment on patient characteristics. And you can see that about 20% of the patients on the ASCENT study were non-white women. Otherwise, the population here and patient characteristics on the study largely reflect the women that we see in our practices. So 99% women, young age at at, um, study enrollment, a median age of about 54, good performance status, small percentage that were BRCA positive, less than 10%, but a large number of these women had unknown germline BRCA status. Many of these patients had triple negative breast cancer right from their original diagnosis, You can see the median number of anti-cancer regimens measured upwards of four with a wide range there, as high as 17 um, prior chemo regimens, so heavily pretreated population, that had seen largely taxanes, anthracyclines, cyclophosphamide, platinums, capecitabine. A good portion had seen prior PARP inhibitor, and about a third of patients had seen prior checkpoint inhibitor. And many of these women had visceral disease. So here's what was just so exciting with the first analysis. Sasituzumab prolonged progression-free survival by 60% compared to standard of care chemo. In the gray box here, I'm sharing with you updated um, analysis after longer follow-up that Dr. has shared with us at ASCO last year, and you can see that the benefits are maintained with longer follow-up. When you look at all the usual um, subgroup analyses broken down by age, by race, by line of therapy, region, prior checkpoint inhibitor, uh, visceral METs or not, all of these are favoring sasituzumab over standard of care chemotherapy. Even more exciting, I would say, than progression-free survival or the overall survival data, where sasituzumab improved overall survival by 50% as compared with standard of care chemotherapy. Again, that benefit was maintained when you see the longer-term follow-up in the update from ASCO last year. So the safety profile of sasituzumab, you know, now that we've been using this for some time, this is well published now, um, I think is relatively well tolerated. And in fact, treatment discontinuation rates were lower for sasituzumab than they were for standard of care chemotherapy. Um, The most common things that we encounter from a hematologic standpoint are neutropenia, although fortunately febrile neutropenia is far less common. um, And grade three diarrhea is a potential concern So you'll find um, it's important to educate our patients, empower them to have Imodium at hand as necessary. Um, And there are several guidelines around how we can prophylax for and mitigate that GI toxicity. So lots of folks have asked about whether you need a particular biomarker for benefit from sasituzumab. And the short answer there is no. Um, Both shown in the ASCENT data for triple negative breast cancer, as well as in the hormone receptor positive population in the tropics data, The degree of trope 2 expression made no difference. Even in patients with low trope 2 expression, sasituzumab was superior to standard of care chemotherapy, both for PFS and overall survival. So no need to explore biomarkers. Um, Just having a diagnosis of triple negative breast cancer suffices to allow our patients um, with TNBC in the second line setting and later to receive sasituzumab. So I'm going to shift gears a little bit. As I mentioned, biomarkers. Um, HER2 is one of those biomarkers we have really had as a standard of care, important marker to know when we're talking about breast cancer, because we've had many effective targeted therapies for HER2-positive breast cancer. We have now sort of identified that um, trastuzumab-deruxtecan appears to have benefit even in patients with low expressing HER2 in their tumors. So HER2 low is defined as IHC one plus or two plus and fish not amplified. And in triple negative breast cancer, uh, about a third of patients will have HER2 low breast cancer. So I want to share with you the data from um, ASCO's plenary last year that has been published in the New England Journal. The Destiny bresto 4 study was a randomized trial looking at TDXD versus treatment of physician's choice chemo. This was largely a study of patients with hormone receptor positive breast cancer. Um, and the study was looking at patients with HER2 low disease randomized to TDXD versus treatment of physician's choice chemotherapy. The primary endpoint here is progression-free survival in those patients with hormone receptor positive disease. Remembering here that those with hormone receptor negative, HER2 low breast cancer, accounted for only 11% of the population. When you look at the exploratory subset of patients, that 11% that had hormone receptor negative, HER2 positive or HER2 low breast cancer, you can see that progression-free survival favored TDXD over treatment of physician's choice chemotherapy with an incremental advantage of almost six months and a hazard ratio of uh, 0.46. We also see an overall survival advantage favoring TDXD over standard of care chemotherapy Here, a meaningful difference, almost 10 months, and again, a hazard ratio of 0.48, so about a 50% improvement. So really exciting efficacy data for that exploratory subset, which amounted to about 60 patients with what would have been classified as triple negative breast cancer. When we look at the other efficacy endpoints, we've got response rates that favor TDXD over standard of care chemotherapy. And when we look at the adverse event profile, Most commonly, um, patients are encountering upper GI toxicity, so nausea, some fatigue, um, a bit of neutropenia when we're looking at hematologic tox, and about a 30 to 40% risk of alopecia with um, TDXD. I will call out an adverse event of special interest is interstitial lung disease. Now, we've seen this from the HER2-positive trials and population here in um, Destiny Breast 04. All grade ILD was less common at about 12%. Thankfully, grade five ILD was less than 1%, so 0.8. And so this is looking improved compared to what we had seen in the later line setting and in the HER2 positive um, setting. So here, a summary of adverse events of special interest. At the top is the ILD data for TDXD versus TPC. Again, about 12% all comers. And in terms of left ventricular dysfunction, um, TDXD and TBC, very low um, risk of LVEF decline. So after seeing the TDXD data and this HER2 low population, we've subsequently um, seen data from the ASCENT trial analyzing those with HER2 low breast cancer. Um, Not surprisingly, whether patients had HER2 low or HER2 zero breast cancer, the benefit from an anti trope 2 antibody with a different payload um, remains superior to that of chemotherapy. So in conclusion, antibody drug conjugates have really significantly improved our options and survival outcomes for patients with advanced triple negative breast cancer. Sacituzumab is now indicated and FDA approved in the second line setting and, uh, and beyond based on its incredible efficacy data in PFS and OS in a large randomized trial that was dedicated to patients with TNBC. And those benefits were seen across all sorts of subtypes regardless of any biomarker expression. When we look at TDXD, this also offers an option for patients with hormone receptor negative HER2 low breast cancer, so about a third of patients with TNBC. Remembering this is based on a small subset of patients, about 60 patients in a larger randomized trial, but um, compelling efficacy of interest for patients that do have that biomarker. Remember to be aware of all the disparities that I shared with you in the beginning of this presentation, recognizing there are demographic differences in incidence of TNBC. We should have awareness of socioeconomic determinants of health. And really, um, I like the statement around inquiry from a place of concern. Ask those questions about what is posing challenges for our patients What are their personal values? What is leading to their sort of priorities and decision-making? And are there ways that we can help reduce barriers to getting the best care that's out there? We did have the opportunity to have a patient program earlier this month, and I'm going to share with you access to that um, at the end of this presentation. But I want to share some of the insights from that patient data um, to just inform some of your practices. So one of the questions asked of the participants, was who on your healthcare team do you most often approach to discuss important issues such as questions around treatment or clinical trial participation? And the vast majority of patients are turning to their oncologists. Three quarters of patients see the oncologist as the source of information about treatment decisions and clinical trials. But we also asked what other, um, what other issues and concerns might you have that you wish your care team would address? And one is as simple as how do treatments work? right? So understanding a little bit of the mechanism. How will I be followed? So this idea of post-treatment screening is really more in the early stage setting, but what is appropriate monitoring and screening? And then a lot of concern around fear of recurrence, emotional support. How do I manage side effects? Um, And this is where I really think we need to recruit our full care team for help in, in providing support for our patients. Which raised the question about uh, how often were our patients in this, as participants here, working with patient navigators or other sources of support? And you can see it's actually only about half of patients, 50 to 60%, had some engagement with another support provider, whether that is someone termed a navigator or um, it could be social work, it could be any range of nursing support and help for our patients. You can see which of the following roles of a patient navigator do you think would be most helpful, and more than half of patients said really just more general information about diagnosis and treatment options, 14% saying mental health support, 17% help in overcoming barriers to care, so transportation, child care, how to manage all that our our women who are on treatment struggle with every day. Um, And then a small proportion, 10%, it's around operational things like, how do I find a doc and schedule an appointment? So the final slide I'm going to lead you with is a call, really a call to clinical trials, a reminder that, look at this, almost 90% of participants in the survey said they would like to be considered for a clinical trial and that they would be likely to participate if only asked, and this little um, bullet, this bubble calls out that clinical trials were not presented as an option, and at no point were they discussed, and if only a trial had been presented, I would have done it, Um, so hearing that that sort of um, anecdote from an individual participant makes us feel like there's opportunity here to be sure we're offering all of our patients potential clinical trials, whether they're therapeutic or or non-therapeutic. So with that, I'm going to turn this over to my colleague, Dr. Vidal, who's going to speak about innovation in earlier treatment lines.
2: Thank you very much for this wonderful job, Dr. Trena. Um, we want to talk to you about some innovation in early treatment lines, um, some of the new approaches under investigation. Again, so this table Dr. Trena went through and, and discussed in some detail. So, I'm not going to go through it except to just point out that there are some sort of targeted approach for triple negative breast cancer, mainly in the PDL1 positive population and the BRCA mutant population, but also in the third line setting, MSI high, NTRAC, RET, t- tumor mutational burden, those high tumor mutational burden also are biomarker um, treatment options for all patients. So I wanna put a plug to make sure that we're doing um, NGS testing in in, in those patients. So we'll talk about combination therapy, adjuvant setting, and some new biomarkers. First thing I wanna talk about is combination therapy. Why do we do them? And this goes back to the 1960s when, when it was recognized that combination therapies, putting more than one therapy together uh, maybe beneficial over single agent, but there were some basic principles established. And those were drugs ought to have different mechanisms of action. So that way you minimize the resistance, minimal overlapping toxicity. You do not want to add toxicity on top of, of toxicity. That intense intermittent treatment is preferred over continuous low dose therapies. And those were some of the principles then. That drugs should cause measurable tumor regression when used individually meaning each drug used should have had some level of activity by themselves and that molecular-targeted combinations inhibiting multiple pathways might lead to complementary growth inhibition and therapeutic activity. There were also uh, some of the models that I will talk to you about. The independent action model, um, which was uh, published in 2017, really should give a, a pictorial a representation of what we're talking about when we talk about um, synergy the idea is when you put two drugs together they should not only just have the impact that they have individually when you and additive but that together they have more than what they would have when you just add them up and i will just simply go through this diagram for you so here on drug a which is, this shows a sequential target where you use drug a and in this situation here there was one out of 10 response. Once you switch to drug B, you get an additional 3 out of 10. So sequentially, overall, 4 patients out of 10 had gotten some response. In this particular situation, in the concurrent, when you use them together, A plus B still gave you 4. So there really wasn't much synergy associated with the drug. In, in the third option here, using drug B and C sequentially, again, we see sort of an additive impact. But look at the last one. The whole idea of synergy is that when we add B and C, we do get the same four responses, but somehow we've gotten much more than we would have expected if we just added on. We see that um, most notably in sort of in the HER2 space, where the addition of anti-HER2 therapy to chemotherapy res- results in a response that is much more than we would have expected just by the additive impact. So have we used, successful combination therapy in, in triple negative breast cancer? The answer is yes. We use currently chemotherapy, and that was discussed in some detail by Dr. Traynor earlier, but we'll just go through this in a little bit. So this is sort of the combination, the cancer immune therapy cycle. And it will start at one. This is the cancer presenting some level of antigen that is then picked up by, den- by dendritic cells presented, causing priming and activation of T-cells that get trafficked to the tumor, it is taken up and recognized, um, the T-cell recognized the tumor, resulted in self killing Now, how is that? Where is the synergy? The synergy with chemotherapy, which was documented, and we'll, we'll discuss a little bit um, later, is that when used with chemotherapy, what chemotherapy does is actually kill the cells, resulting in even more antigen being presented having a more robust immune response, and then together resulting in even more self killing. Uh, this was noted in keynote 355, which was just discussed. I'm not going to go into much more detail with that, only to show that with the combination of chemotherapy and pembrolizumab, we not only see improvement in progression-free survival, but we also see overall survival through this sort of synergistic combination of approaches. In the early setting, in Keynote 522, we saw the very same thing. This is a triple negative population with either lymph node positive or at least two centimeters of disease who were randomized to chemotherapy, which is adromycin cytokine, followed by carboplatin and with or without pembrolizumab in a two to one practic um, randomization. Patient would go on to surgery and then complete about a year of pembrolizumab, I think it was about nine cycles every three weeks versus standard of care, which was just observation. What we found is that the addition of pembrolizumab to chemotherapy, which was standard chemotherapy, resulted in almost 14% improvement in pathologic complete response, which then led to improved disease control at uh, three months with a hazard ratio of 0.63 uh, <clears throat> with an 84.5% of patients being without disease at three years versus 76.8%. So we see activity here with the combination of pembrolizumab to standard chemotherapy. Now, the question is, was pdl one status important? What we see here is even in patients who were considered pdl one negative, that CPS less than one, was greater than one. There was a benefit to the addition of a drug of, of pembrolizumab to chemotherapy. You will notice that in the PDL1 negative population, the response overall, the pathological response rate was lower overall in both the treatment and the placebo arm. But there was a benefit to the addition of, of pembrolizumab in the PDL1 and PDL1 negative positive and negative patients. Even in the patients that are considered inflamed, where their CPS scores were really high, those patients, again, benefited from the addition of pembrolizumab, even if all these patients, even in the placebo group, tended to have a higher response rate if they were considered a more inflamed tumor. Some of that data was presented, some similar data was presented at ASCO this year, suggesting that in tumors who have high TILs, in the HER2-positive space, we do see improved responses. So, But not only combining chemotherapy with immunotherapy that can have um, synergistic effect. Looking here just at the, the, the cancer immuno, imm- immunity cycle, we see what I'm showing is the large number of targets that are available at every cycle, every part of the cycle, where right now we are trying to manipulate um, in order to find synergistic approach to, for, for self killing. Again, I'm um, simplifying very much this immune cycle, but you should also be aware that at every step, there is some level of control that happens to the immune system. Some are inhibitory, some are activating, And trying to manipulate those in a way that can improve self-healing is, is being um, widely studied. Now, Again, just this, this is just giving us a really broad look at some of the targets that are available and being um, tar- uh, targeted for potential therapies in triple negative. I've had always said triple negative breast cancer, and for those of you who understand, it's really a diagnosis of exclusion. It's not ER positive. It's not PR positive. It's not HER2 positive, so we put it in a bucket, and we call it triple negative. We've established with the first publication by Lehman in A.L. that there is probably about five um, subtypes within that group of triple negative that we're all calling triple negative breast cancer. And once we look within them, we also find that they activate different sort of pathways within the cell. And these can be targeted individually for treatment of them. So here on the molecular target for the basal light, They are probably needed because RAD51, CHECK1 targets, and I'm not going to go through all of them, but you can see that there are a wide range of targets that could potentially separate all the subtypes of what we call triple negative breast cancer in order to find available successful therapy. There are other ADCs, antibody drug conjugates, and Dr. Trina talked about um, some two of them today, but there are others that are being studied that target say HER3. And we, we, we've seen at ASCO that there was a population of triple negative breast cancer that seemed to have some benefit from that HER3 target. We talked about trope, but there are other trope type ADCs that are on the market that are actually being studied, not yet on the market, sorry. HER4 type ADC immune target ADCs and CDH6 ADCs. And they are circulating tumor DNA looking at min- minimal residual disease type studies that are also being undertaken. So, so what combination trials of interest uh, that are um, on ongoing? So first we'll talk about the ASCENT trials, ASCENT-03 and 04 and 05. This is l- utilizing satituzumab. With or, with or without immunotherapy in earlier settings. O3 and O4 are looking in the first-line setting. O5 is looking um, in the adjuvant setting to see if the addition of these drugs will result in either further responses in the triple negative space. The tropian suites of trial utilizes a trope type, again, antibody with a different payload. Uh, there are cooperative group trials. Uh, namely, the toxicate carboplatin with pembrolizumab, versus AC-pembrolizumab um, that are being designed, and I look forward to them. The results of IMPASSION-031 um, with a atezolizumab, that is the event-free survival data, is outstanding. We saw at ESMO um, last year immunotherapy with ibilumumab and nivolumab in a triple ne- negative space some, saw some early results in the high really highly inflamed tumors. There are PAP inhibitors being investigated uh, with immunotherapy in the early line setting. Can we exclude chemotherapy uh, in that population of patients? And there are other targets like lac TIGIT antibodies and other new ADCs being developed. When we look and look at this map of what clinical trials being conducted around the world, we see it there's a large amount of trials that are being conducted. And this map was gotten from clinicaltrial.gov. But I will point to you that in the, the geographies where there are patients who are most likely to have triple negative, Dr. Trainer talked about the, 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 the fact that triple negative breast cancer shows up in higher numbers in minority population. Look at Africa, only eight trials compared to the European um, or even Asian based trials. So that's a population that's not studied uh, in in large enough numbers. We also know that patients of color really don't participate in trials, and and Dr. Trina talked about some of the reasoning for that. Approximately only 5% of our trials include uh, patients of color, and that needs to get better, because that's the way we're gonna understand how drugs impact these patients, and even tolerability. What we did at WEST, recognizing that this is an issue we at West have been very fortunate to be able to located in an area where there's a high population of patients of color. So we have a high um, triple negative population, but also we have had very good success in recruiting patients of color. Uh, in 2021, approximately 30 percent of our patients that we put on trial um, were of color. What we sought to do is to look internally at our um, experience to one learn and see what we do well, what we do not do well and what we could improve and this is just I'm just going to show you some um, some early results from this experience where we went in and had conversations with with stakeholders within um, West Cancer Center to try to understand what is it what the Black or minority patient experience in clinical trial was here at WEP. So in this study, the methodology that we were, that we utilized, Inside Edge was one of the, the contracting institutions who helped with this. Developed discussion guide to facilitate conversation between study participants and moderators. Uh, questions were modified to appropriately speak to each respondent group. We had 35 minutes in-depth in telephone interview conducted with multiple constituencies to obtain a holistic view of clinical trial practices. Interviews were conducted between March and April of 2022. We have here the breakdown on the category of the the individuals who who participated in the study. We had staff, community leaders, clinical trial participants, even patients who declined clinical trials, and caregivers. So in short, these were sort of enlarged groups the main, some of the barriers that were noted by black patients or why they didn't participate. Um, cost and financial burden uh, was the first concern of many patients after cancer diagnosis. You have to understand that being diagnosed with cancer is cost prohibitive for a lot of patients, but also patients on trial. In order for you to get on a trial, you need to have had insurance because the significant cost of this trial is standard of care. Uh, we at West have made, uh, uh, <clears throat> made some inroads in here in that we try not to limit any patient from getting in, and we'll talk a little bit about that, but financial burden was one of the first concerns. Transportation, other personal challenges, like transportation, time of work, caring for car- family members were another concern. Lack of education about what a cancer is, what a clinical trial is. Um, <clears throat> and then distrust uh, based on historical um, events that have happened within that community, and then the spirituality—the fact that a lot of patients say I'm just leaving it up to God to and putting it in His hands—was uh, also a very important um, point here that we, we found. So some of the highlights of what uh, the the respondents thought that West Clinic did well: uh, one was uh, clinical trial awareness. We try to and establish that every patient who comes to the West understands that clinical trial is going, is a very important part of the treatment. Uh, and we try to um, approach every patient uh, with at least some idea of clinical trial if there are a candidate. Not every physician does it as well, but as a whole institution, we try to make that aware. And, and this is one of the factors that um, Dr. Trina spoke about earlier. Financial support. Uh, we've made a decision as an institution that if you are a candidate for a study, you having not having insurance was not going to be the reason you didn't participate. So we we have made the decision to eat a lot of the standard of care costs, and when we can get assistance, we get assistance for the patient. We do a lot of community outreach programs, and most and also very important that cannot be downplayed. One of the reasons why we're very successful at recruiting patients of color is because a lot of our staff look like the patients who are recruiting them. And there's some familiarity there, and, and, I, and that also helps in, in getting patients to be comfortable with the recommendations that we're making. And most and lastly, um, raising awareness for support of patients, um, both inside and outside of the West Campus. So that's the end of my presentation, and, and thank you guys for your attention, and I will pass it on to Steph- Stephanie, uh, who will move forward to Stephanie Walker to discuss next.
3: Thank you so much, Dr. Um, hi. Like I said, or they said, my name is Stephanie Walker. Uh, I am a patient actually living with metastatic breast cancer. Um, in a couple of weeks, it will be eight years. Uh, giving you a little bit, just a tad bit background on the BECOME project. It is a patient-led um, initiative that was started by another patient, Marina Kaplan, who done a study to um, kind of survey the engagement of patients um, with clinical regarding clinical trials and patient-centered outcomes. Uh, we decided um, to do it again and aim that at the black community because with her Project. She found that there was only like eight uh, percent black participants that responded to her survey. So, um, with that going forward, we decided to do it, aim it at the black community, and see what kind of like fell out at the bottom of, of this survey. So, uh, with the Become Project, it stands for the um, black uh, stands for the black experience in clinical trials and opportunities for meaningful engagement. Um, become as a patient-led research initiative that was sponsored by the Metastatic Breast Cancer Alliance, and the alliance is an organization in itself that is not a nonprofit; that it is an umbrella-like um, entity that has individual advocates, which are patients living with metastatic breast cancer, and those that are cancer-free. Also consists of. Um, 32 to 35 nonprofits, and also consists of industry and um, pharma and biotech uh, companies as well, all working together to find and aid the patient um, with metastatic breast cancer and to have a quality of life. Among the U.S. racial ethnic groups, Black people have with breast cancer have the highest death rate and also high, um, the shortest survival time. Um. Although the 15% of the in the U.S. of black of patients living with breast cancer, 4% to 6% of the clinical trial participants are black. So the goal here is to try to increase the black participants in all clinical trials. Only when clinical trial participants um, reflect the diversity of the general population can oncologists actually understand how a drug will work across sub. Uh, populations. The objectives of the Become project <laughs> was to understand uh, barriers to trial participants for Black patients with metastatic breast cancer, and also to identify action steps. Uh, we believe that we wanted to actually um, have some action to come out here that we could do, and not just do another survey and have the results to sit on the shelf. So the there were four actually big big topics that came out of the become. Um one is that the patient needed to be better informed. We um the black patients wanted to know about and would consider doing a clinical trial, but they lacked the information information. So there was like ninety two percent said that they would be interested or um that would could actually participate in a clinical trial, but only thirty six percent considered um, that they received the information that would be needed to um, enter or find out more information. We all know about inspired uh, to inspire trust in the Black community with medical care all around. Um, so with Black patients, we are more likely than non-Black patients to want to learn about clinical trials from someone. With shared experiences, and that shared experience could be someone living with metastatic breast cancer, somebody that looks like me, um, somebody that has actually been in a clinical trial or has breast cancer. To ensure access, um, we, uh, as Black patients, considered the following: the um, consider the following to be important barriers to the clinical trials. And that's logistics, obviously, getting to from uh, clinical trials. Um, Finding the trials was a big problem. That was a surprise for me um, because we can't locate them. We don't know the avenues to uh, go. We don't have a nurse navigator to help us with uh, finding the clinical trials. And they're not easily found either. Um, You know, I think it was Dr. Vidal mentioned um, healthcare.gov, No, um, clinicaltrials.gov, and it's not a very easy um, site to navigate. It's really hard to navigate, and I even as a nurse have trouble navigating that. So um, it's not an easy place to go find clinical trials. And also the expenses, Um, you know, if you're having to work uh, – during your treatment or having metastatic breast cancer you can't take off work for a clinical trial um and if you don't work you don't have money to pay your bills if you don't have to pay your bills you know that even decreases you in that socioeconomic group of of people so um expenses um was a big um component as well also not addressing our concerns we feel like that communication clearly about the issues that worry black patients and the reasons that motivate their willingness to participate in clinical trials. Like um, to our common worries, like addressing side effects questions that we may have that are not um, answered or we don't talk about Um, effectiveness of the clinical trial on us as patients or as black patients. we also are want to know that if this is going to help other patients that look like us as well. So those, you know, open communication, I believe, with um the healthcare team, um, whether it's the nurse navigator or the nurse advanced nurse practitioner or the um physician himself, open communication is needed, you know, throughout the whole process. And we find that it's not given to us um, with communication. It is like um, there's a barrier, right? When you have that um, oncologist to walk into your room to talk to you about a clinical trial, it's not mentioned, you know, because you know you also have those implicit, explicit um, organizational biases (laughs) that come along with um, you know the communication part. And you know, as a black woman, um, having I have experienced that when a doctor comes in to talk to me. Um, it's like they already have those things made up in their mind, you know, like one, I'm a black woman, two, that I'm not, you know, I'll not complete a clinical trial. So why even bother to talk about it? Do I know what a clinical trial is for one? And then, you know, we have that connotation of being always labeled, you know, an angry black woman too. So, you know, the physician with, um, you know, with the communication um, it it needs they need to stop that. They just need to stop, stop it at the door and talk to us about clinical trials um, that there as well. With this, we also decided that the next steps um, with this was that all stakeholders have a role to play. Um, expand. We wanted to expand the survey respondents. When we did this, it was actually done during the pandemic uh, with the lockdown. So, um, all of this was done via Zoom. Um, a subcommittee was found. We met with the subcommittee. The survey questions were developed. Um, all of this was done by Zoom, and it was done by, um, you know, we reached out to the community in ways that we could. And that way, at that time, it was all done by um, telecommunications of one way or another by social media. Um, the survey was done there. Uh, we even offered it by mail, you know, you could link, um, there was a link that you could click on and you could get the survey and to fill out by mail if you wanted to. And we actually had somebody, you know, a couple that did that. Uh, but what I did with this, I reached a choir. Um, I reached the people that are connected to social media. I reached the people that are, um, educated with their disease process, or highly motivated, you know, to, to look at to clinical trials. I didn't reach the people that look like me. And uh, when I say look like me, those that are Black and living in rural communities. So we kind of like wanted to find out, branch out a little bit more now that is a little bit more open to see how the, um, other people in rural communities um, responded to the same questions. So we also wanted to share our results and develop strategies members of the become initiative uh we met with other groups um that looked like that that would that had a reach into the community uh, the black community and we um kind of like those that focus on black men and women with breast cancer and to share the results and identify strategies to move forward with that um point we did do something about this last year. We came up with a um, another project called Black Women Speak, um, and it was pre- um, done the day before San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium last year, and it was a packed house. And it was aimed at that was just solely for healthcare providers to have um, to understand how to have the communication with the patient. And that was a big success. We also are here to increase patient enrollment in clinical trials and have activities that include, um, uh, included to do that, our patient education, training the healthcare providers on effective patient communications, and then helping patients across clinical trials. So um, that is essentially what the Become Project was, and um, I am going to give it back to Dr. Uh, Vidal and Dr. Trainer for any questions.
1: Thank you so much, Stephanie. That was just amazing. And Dr. Vidal. So I know we're at the top of the hour, but I do want to just address, there was a question that came in that asked about timing of biomarkers, because we've talked about a bunch of different markers that are critical for, uh, you know, optimizing treatment plans. And so one of our participants asked, when do we do this testing? Um, And I'd be happy to hear, Greg, what you think. I I would suggest that at any diagnosis of triple negative breast cancer, early stage or late, we should be doing germline testing and offering that to our patients. That is impactful for their own care, and it has an impact on their families as well. So I would say that is at any stage at diagnosis. Um, I know you had mentioned uh, a bit about tumor sequencing and the setting of metastatic disease, and do you have a preference of when you do that?
2: Um, yes. So... It's been our policy at our institution, especially for triple negative, to have um, broad molecular panel testing at first metastatic diagnosis. We're doing the biopsy anyway. We have tissue available. Send it out because it can impact um, your, your choice of therapy, be it pd one or even BRCA, PARP inhibitor, and or be a candidate for, for a clinical trial. So we do it at first um, diagnosis.
1: Outstanding. I would agree. That's our practice as well. And I think explaining the reason why we're doing this really helps um, sort of dispel some of the mythology around the genetics and what it's being used for. So, yeah, super important. Well, I do want to thank you, Dr. Vidal, Stephanie, thanks to our audience that hung in with us through this hour for such great questions. I wish we could have gotten to more of them. Um, I'd also like to thank Gilead Sciences for their support of our educational activity this evening. Um, And just a reminder that a companion patient session that was entitled Navigating Treatment and Support for Triple Negative Breast Cancer is available on demand at cancercoachlive.com and medlive.com. So please do remember to complete the post-test at the end of the session to receive your CME credits. Please visit omedlive.com to view today's session, along with many other sessions that are available on demand. Um, Again, my name is Dr. Tiffany Traina, and I thank you all so much for joining us. Have a wonderful evening.
0: You have been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by Partners for Advancing Clinical Education, or PACE, and Platform Q Healthcare Education, LLC, in collaboration with the National Breast Cancer Foundation, or NBCF, and is supported by an educational grant from Gilead Sciences Incorporated. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com CME. Thank you for listening.